0: Good evening and thank you for joining me tonight. We bring you a TJPS special report on this Saturday. Um, A story that has caught the world's attention. It was on Christmas Day here in the United States, and there was major breaking international news. The president of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, got on TV and announced his resignation as the eighth and final leader of the Soviet Union. As I say, this was a major story because the Soviet Union was not just this small, obscure country that's a nice vacation spot. No, it had major foreign policy implications. And just to give you a little bit of context here, on January 1st, 1991, the Soviet Union was the largest country in the world, covering more than eight million square miles. That's nearly one-sixth of Earth's land surface. So its leader resigning as president was just obviously going to be a huge, huge global deal. This was reporting from NBC News.
1: Good evening, Mikhail Gorbachev and the Soviet Union are history. So today, the United States began to shift gears toward Boris Yeltsin and the new Commonwealth of Independent States. President Bush said he's been in close touch with Yeltsin and expects a meeting soon. NBC's Jim Miklaszewski is at the White House. Jim? Jane, just a few months ago, the White House would barely give Yeltsin the time of day. Now Bush is talking about a possible summit with Yeltsin, and they've got plenty to discuss. Just before he met with reporters today, Bush signed the CFE treaty. First negotiated with the Soviets, it reduces conventional forces in Europe. But the enormous problems that lie ahead in dealing with this new Commonwealth left little time to celebrate. First, it's more complex. With no central government, the U.S. must now deal with 12 separate republics. And with their economies on the verge of collapse, Bush himself warned of a potential for chaos. I'm not predicting disaster. I am just saying we've got to be alert to the pressures Uh, that are going to be brought to bear on the republics. Hunger is the most immediate threat. U.S. officials predict that some of the republics could run out of food by March. Time is critical. It takes three months from the time a shipment of grain leaves port before it turns up as a loaf of bread on a store shelf. Bush officials say U.S. shipments of humanitarian aid will continue, but there's no promise of any new direct financial aid. But U.S. fears over nuclear weapons have been eased considerably. U.S. officials say the republics have given credible assurances over nuclear weapons security. And within 10 days, a State Department team heads to the republics to advise on the dismantling of the weapons. Bush thinks nuclear controls will actually be easier with the new commonwealth. Uh, because uh, we don't have the um, the. Com- ...on their part of viewing the United States as an enemy has happened over all the years of the Cold War. In a Christmas night address, Bush gave credit for all this to his old friend Mikhail Gorbachev. His policies permitted the peoples of Russia and the other republics to cast aside decades of oppression and establish the foundations of freedom.
0: That was reporting from NBC News on December 26, 1991. The Soviet Union was no more. It was not just one nation. It was actually 15 different states under eight different rulers over the course of its 69 years, nearly seven decades spanning. And when the Union collapsed, those 15 different individual states had to become independent and split up into nations like Georgia, Ukraine, Russia, Lithuania, Estonia, Armenia, Belarus, Azerbaijan, and seven other nations along with essentially along the way russia um, even though it's not the soviet union anymore it's still the largest country in the world and it sought to intimidate the former surrounding soviet states into staying within their realm for example when the 15 states separated into countries a civil war broke out in the nation of georgia when two provinces south Ossetia and Abkhazia, uh, both in ethnicities wanted their own independence within georgia And in the late 1990s, NATO, which is a North Atlantic Treaty Organization, created back in 1949 under the U.S., Essentially, it's a group of several Western countries, including Canada and European nations, to essentially provide collective protection against the Soviet Union. Their main purpose is to guarantee the freedom and security of their members through political and military means. It is a huge family. They defend each other. For instance, after the U.S. was attacked on September 11, 2001, NATO immediately came to our aid. So in the 90s, NATO, this powerful global institution, and the European Union, they expanded their influence into Eastern and Central Europe, which was very close to the former Soviet Union. And one of their former states, Georgia, and nevertheless, the nation of Georgia, they kept moving to Moving further towards the West in terms of ideals and beliefs and systems, in 2003, they supported a U.S.-led coalition fighting in Iraq after the election of Mikhail Sekulavishi, excuse me if I pronounce that name wrong, in 2004. The country continued this trend. After Georgia arrested four Russian military officers for suspected spying, Russia basically responded to that by closing Georgia businesses and deporting Georgian citizens. So tensions were quite high during this time. Dr. Mark Galletti, a London-based lecturer on Russian security affairs, told History.com, quote, Georgia was clearly embarked on a process of trying to break out of Russia's sphere of influence, and as far as Russia was concerned, this was an absolute priority. It had to maintain its sphere of influence. And if it let Georgia go, then who could be next? End quote. And so just think about that for a second. If Russia let Georgia go from its sphere of influence, who could be next? That would create a domino effect of more of the former Soviet states becoming aligned with the West and joining NATO, and Russia slowly, gradually becoming isolated. And so, in 2008, during the Beijing Olympics in China, and with the Georgia on the verge of joining NATO, that's when it happens. Russia invaded the nation of Georgia. 40,000 soldiers marched in, accompanied by 1,200 armored vehicles. It made international news at the time. This was reporting from NBC. This is reporting, excuse me, from CBS News.
1: Overseas, a fierce battle broke out today on the fringe of the former Soviet Union. Tonight, Secretary of State Rice is calling on Russia to end its assault on the Republic of Georgia, now a U.S. ally. The fighting is in Georgia's province of South Ossetia, home to many Russians who are still loyal to the Kremlin and want to break away from Georgia. Richard Roth has the latest.
2: Columns of Russian tanks and troops rolled into the American-backed former Soviet Republic of Georgia today after a nighttime barrage of artillery fire and rockets. Georgia said it was trying to retake control of South Ossetia, the breakaway province on Russia's border that's policed by Russian peacekeepers. Claiming more than ten of its soldiers were killed in the night attack, Moscow said it would retaliate. Russian jets bombed four airfields, according to Georgia, and there are conflicting reports tonight over who's controlling Ossetia's main city. Separatists there claim as many as a thousand people have been killed in the fighting. Journalist Georgi Lomsadze. We're very, very scared and some people are trapped right now. Uh, civilians, many civilians are trapped in their uh, houses and their cellars as um, uh, very heavy fighting still goes on. Roads to the Russian border are filling with refugees, and Georgia's capital tonight is filled with tension. But nobody knows what's going to happen. Nobody uh, knows if Russia eventually moves to um, use all its military might uh, against Georgia, because in that case, Georgia doesn't stand a chance. President Bush and Russian Prime Minister Putin talked about it at the Olympics, where according to a Russian spokesman, Putin bluntly told the president, war has started today. Moscow puts blame on the US and its allies, saying what made Georgia's offensive possible was military aid from the West. The US responded with a call that sounded like an echo of the Cold War, demanding a ceasefire and a pullback of Russian troops from foreign soil. Richard Roth, CBS News, London.
0: Once again, that was reporting from CBS News. This was just absolutely horrifying. A ceasefire was soon reached, but over a thousand people died. Many people were injured, went missing, and Russian troops slowly started to finally withdraw, but they kept some there at checkpoints in Georgia. The president at the time of the United States was George W. Bush, and he announced that humanitarian aid would be sent to Georgia, and other diplomats actually went there to go check out the situation on the ground. As of 2020, they were still Russian troops in Georgia. A Georgian diplomat said that only makes them more committed to joining NATO and the European Union. Last year, this was reporting from Europe youractive.com quote 13 years on, 20% of Georgia remains occupied. Russia has not implemented crucial elements of the 2008 point ceasefire agreement including withdrawing its forces to pre-conflict positions. Instead, Moscow has increased its political, economic, and social influence in the occupied territories of South Ossetia and Abkhazia. The populations of both have become more isolated and susceptible to Russian disinformation and propaganda. The COVID pandemic reinforced This trend, Russia has also strengthened its military presence. Both territories have become large military bases that Moscow uses to project power across the region. Today, between 9,000 and 10,000 Russian soldiers are deployed. Furthermore, a creeping annexation continues along with the administrative boundary line. Georgian territory is being eked away centimeter by centimeter. This situation has also resulted in the ongoing arbitrary detention of Georgian citizens. Human rights have also been in freefall, with numerous human rights violations happening on daily basis. International access to the occupied territories continues to be denied to international human rights monitors and humanitarian assistance. The European Union monitoring mission is unable to properly carry out its mandate as it is, Prevented from entering Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Beyond toothless statements, the international committee, not least the EU and the US, have failed to challenge Russia for its non-compliance and ongoing occupation. This gives the impression that they can live with the status quo. End quote. After Russia invaded Georgia in 2008, there were no consequences for them. No sanctions, no removal from international groups. They were just given a second chance. That was a huge mistake. Because not punishing behavior like that and allowing a reset in ties, not punishing a drastic, a dramatic international I guess theatrics like that from a huge foreign power. Something that hasn't happened like that since World War II when Hitler started taking countries for himself and seizing them and making them part of Germany. Not punishing something like that and just allowing, oh yeah, we'll give you a second chance and just allowing a reset in ties, that does not make a country like Russia ponder on what they've done, saying, hmm, maybe we shouldn't do that again and feel bad about it. It emboldens them. And they do it again. Whether it's the same country or another, they will do it again. And so they did. In the year of 2014, Russia was hosting the Winter Olympics in Sochi. And the eyes of the world were upon them as they were having this huge moment. But before the games were over that year, Russia and Putin in particular got very embarrassed as this pro-democracy uprising took place in the capital of Ukraine. It actually led to um, Ukrainian's president actually fleeing the country, who was essentially this pro-Russian guy at the time. Russia, of course, had installed this pro-Putin guy to be the president of the country to make sure that they were still aligning with Russia's views and not getting any ideas about becoming a part of NATO or aligning with Western culture. And so in 2014, following these mass protests in Ukraine, which citizens demanding their country be be a Western-facing nation integrated with Europe, that is no longer to be managed as a corrupt territory of Russia and the Kremlin. That pro-Putin leader had been installed by Ukraine, in Ukraine, excuse me, by Russia. Initially, he responded by killing lots of those protesters on the streets. And that just looked horrible alongside all the Olympic coverage that Russia was hosting. And so, ultimately, he ended up fleeing the country. He fled to Russia after the situation intensified. And the people in Ukraine won. But Russia was not having it. They were not allowing them to have a prolonged victory. And so they were infuriated by this news so much that they decided to annex Crimea, which is part of Ukraine, and they sent in Russian military forces. After that major event, the Obama administration imposed sanctions on 11 Russians. Steve Holland from Reuters reported at the time, quote, The sanctions were the most visible sign of U.S. anger at Russia's attempt to absorb the Crimea region and southern Ukraine, reflecting the deepest plunge in U.S.-Russian relations since the Cold War. End quote. And this news was so concerning that it ultimately got Russia kicked out of the G8, thenceforth making it the G7. For those of you who are unfamiliar with that term, it's basically a group of the world's seven largest economies. Uh, We got Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the UK, and the US. And according to BBC News, the group regards itself as a community of values with freedom and human rights, democracy, and the rule of law, and prosperity and sustainable development as its key principles. Subsequent to those events of Russia being removed from the G8, making it the G7, the United States pledged $1 billion in aid to Ukraine and condemned Russia, and that was just remarkable. I mean, it showed another sign of we're with you and we've got your back, Ukraine. We are your ally. We are your friend. But following those events, President Obama announced the European Reassurance Initiative, which later changed its name to the European Deterrence Initiative. But essentially, this was quite a huge step because after the European Reassurance Initiative was created back in 2014, the Obama administration posted this statement on their website, quote, to reassure allies of our solemn commitment to their security and territorial integrity as members of the NATO alliance. The statement continues. This is, quote, necessary and an appropriate show of support to allies who are now deeply concerned by Russia's occupation and attempted annexation of Crimea and other prov- pro- excuse me, provocative actions in Ukraine. The United States stands by its allies as they have stood by us." End quote. So These four major actions were taken in retaliation against Russia for their reprehensible actions. One, sanctions, Russia gets sanctions by the Obama administration. Two, they get kicked out of the G8, making it the G7. Three, the United States pledges $1 billion in aid to Ukraine while simultaneously condemning Russia. And four, President Barack Obama creates the European Reassurance Initiative, which later becomes the European Deterrence Initiative, basically as a show of force and commitment and solidarity with Ukraine and also our European allies. Hey, we've got your back. We see what Russia is doing and we, we will defend you. We will help you. We will protect you. And in 2017, when Donald Trump became president of the United States, he showed a profound love for Russia. In the second year of his administration, he decided to hold off on rendering Russia new sanctions despite it being the law. And then in 2019, Trump advocated for bringing Russia back into the G7. Hey, let's make it the G8 again. I mean, the president literally postponed the whole event because he wanted Russia to be there because Russia was absent. Essentially saying that Russia belongs there and let's make it the group of eight again. And so those are two things. Here's the third one. In 2019, Donald Trump held up Ukraine military aid meant to confront Russia. Why did he do that? Reportedly to fund his border wall that he said Mexico was going to pay for, of course. Ultimately, that is not the reason why he was impeached. It was related to withholding Ukraine military aid, but it was for political gain. And when Trump did that in 2019, you want to know another place he cut funding from to help build his wall? It was the European Deterrence Initiative. So this consistent affection for Russia has emboldened them. I mean, the the whole reason why Donald Trump got impeached for the first time in 2019 was because he essentially said, hey, Ukraine, I want you to investigate Joe Biden. I want you to investigate my Democratic opponent, who probably is my most likely Democratic opponent in the national presidential election. I need you to investigate Joe Biden for corruption. Ukraine said no, so the Trump administration deliberately withheld protection from them. We we give Ukraine javelin missiles to protect themselves against the Russians. We are an ally to Ukraine. Ukraine is our ally. They are, we protect them because we understand Russian aggression and Russian provocation as Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014. And that is a lingering threat with the current and continuous, almost perpetual occupation of Crimea. Crimea is a part of Ukraine. Russia annexed it in 2014 illegally. That is not their territory, but Russian troops still stay there. And so for this to have happened, for Russia to continuously be emboldened internationally, I mean, over the years, this obviously does lead to some concerns of what may happen next, what they may try to do, how they may try to calculate their next move. And now we are here in 2022 with that history in mind under a new administration, President Joe Biden, That is watching closely, along with NATO and the European Union. There are re-emerging tensions between Russia and Ukraine. Ukraine is a former Soviet state, and now it's an independent nation. And they, like Georgia in 2008, have been wanting to be a part of NATO for a very, very long time, wanting to align with cultures. In 2014, when the little person that Putin installed in Russia to be their leader in Ukraine... Yeah, he fled the country, but that was only because there were pro-democracy uprisings in Ukraine at the time. This national revelatory strength saying that we want to be a part of NATO. We want to be a Western-facing country. We no longer want to align with this dictatorship that is Putin's Russia. That's why he fled the country. The Ukrainians are still committed to becoming a part of NATO, but Russia does not want that. And what do they do when they don't want someone to become a a part of NATO, specifically a former Soviet state? They invade the country. They invaded Ukraine in 2014 for that reason. They invaded Georgia in 2008 for that same reason. Russia strongly objects to the fact that they are aggressive in this or that they should or that an invasion is about to happen. The question that everyone is asking now is, will there be war? Will Russia invade Ukraine again? That is a live question that the world is wanting answers to right now. And we've got that story coming up next. Stay with us.
2: Whether you put down your phone to be there for your daughter or pick up your phone, To call a helpline for your roommate. When it comes to mental health, now more than ever, every action counts.
0: It was August 24th, 1991, and the news of independence was greeted with overwhelming joy.
2: At the New York office of the Ukrainian
1: National Tribune, this was a day that dreams are made of. The Declaration of Independence is on as of... Today? That's what it says. From the moment effective of proclamation. Today. From the moment of proclamation. From the moment of proclamation.
2: Good. An already emotional week ended
1: today as the people of the Ukraine
3: embark on
2: a new beginning, becoming the fifth republic
1: to
3: break yeah. away from the Kremlin. Leaving Ukraine is our lives. And this is something that we've been fighting for for as long as we've been, we've been, alive. been alive.
2: Many of New York City's 60,000 Ukrainians live in Manhattan's Lower East Side, where today's news is a source of pride. I'm
3: very satisfied so where we have freedom.
2: The Ukrainians here in the New York area are hoping that Washington moves quickly to recognize today's Declaration of Independence. And they're also hoping that U.S. aid to their homeland is no longer channeled
1: through the Soviet central government. It's nonsense and it's, frankly, it's a moot point right now to send uh, aid to uh, the central government because the central government does not exist. The Ukrainians admit these are uncertain times, Uh, but they're certain the dark days of communism are over. At the newspaper, the editor pointed to his computer to find the right words, sure to grace tomorrow's front page. They mean glory to the Ukraine glory to our heroes in manhattan lisa kesselman channel 2 news
0: that was reporting from a local new york tv station at the time ukraine was no longer a part of the soviet union and officially independent but since then it's faced many challenges for instance at the end of 2013 due to ukraine having a pro-russian president that was close to close with putin uh, the nation rejected an association with the eu which is the european union They did that in order to become closer to Russia. And by 2014, things started getting violent. Pro-Russian movements led to deaths in Ukraine. And that's when Russia took advantage of that and moved to annex Crimea in 2014. In April, just a month after that invasion, Russian separatists and Ukraine seized two cities, Luhansk and Donetsk, declaring them independent from the nation of Ukraine. And when the Ukrainian military sought to take those two regions rightfully back, they were met with violence supported by the Russian government assisting those separatists. A peace agreement was soon reached, but none of those terms have ever been followed or established. Those separatists in eastern Ukraine are still there today and just called for women and children to immediately evacuate Donbass, as well as other parts of Ukraine, because supposedly, according to them, Ukraine is about to launch a massive attack Putin is telling Russians to house residents fleeing Donbass, saying we'll provide you with food and shelter as if this is a humanitarian crisis. That is just 100% false. But it's also part of a larger game that Russia is playing right now, which is disinformation. There's a lot of disinformation on the ground and the West and U.S. are actively working to counter that by consistently releasing reports exposing Russia's actions and their potential next moves. Experts have said that this unprecedented the incident campaign of revelations by U.S. intelligence is basically throwing Russia off balance in terms of what they may try to do or what they may have planned to do next, because the public already knows about it. And despite that, and potentially making Putin question what his sources are even telling him, former CIA Russia analyst Michael Landingham told Yahoo News, "Quote: The distrust of intelligence can cut both ways. Particularly, excuse me, particularly when it comes to Russia, it's hard not to believe that there isn't a game within a game within a game within a game." End quote. Another former CIA official said this essentially is a double-edged sword, adding that, quote, Putin is a KGB guy, so he might be feeding us disinformation, end quote. The KGB, of course, is an influential Russian intelligence agency. Basically, they're CIA, so these are all open possibilities here. The president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, um, has been very very calm about this, publicly about the situation, but that has been met with frustration from foreign counterparts, officials at the Ukrainian embassy in Washington, D.C., telling him, quote, no, no, seriously, it's coming, end quote. It was just recently that the U.S. pulled all of its diplomats from the embassy in Kiev, which is the capital of Ukraine, so the urgency and the threat of an invasion looms large. And as I said at the beginning of the show, the world is watching right now wanting answers on if there will be an invasion of the nation of Ukraine. Earlier this week, um, in an address before the country on Friday, President Biden spoke about that and listened to what he said.
3: Over the last few days, we've seen reports of a major uptick in violations of the ceasefire by Russian-backed fighters attempting to provoke Ukraine and the Donbass. We also uh, continue to see more and more disinformation being pushed out by — to the Russian public, including Russian-backed separatists, claiming that Ukraine is planning to launch a massive offensive attack in the Donbas. Well, look, there is simply no evidence of these assertions, and it defies basic logic to believe the Ukrainians would choose this moment, with well over 150,000 troops arrayed on its borders, to escalate a year-long conflict. Russia's state media also continues to make phony allegations of a genocide taking place in the Donbas a, and push fabricated claims, warning about Ukraine's attack on Russia, without any evidence. That's just what I'm sure Ukraine's thinking of doing: attacking Russia. Throughout these tense moments, the Ukrainian forces have shown great judgment, and I might add, restraint. They refused to allow the Russians to bait them into war. We have reason to believe that Russian forces are planning to uh, and intend to attack Ukraine in the coming week, in the coming days. Russia can still choose diplomacy. It is not too late to de-escalate and return to the negotiating table. Last night, Russia agreed that Secretary of State Blinken and Foreign Minister Lavrov should meet on uh, on February 24th. February 24th, in Europe. But if Russia takes military action before that date, we'll be clear that they have slammed the door shut on diplomacy. They will have have chosen a war, and they will pay a steep price for doing so.
1: And do you have any indication about whether President Putin has made a decision on whether to invade? Do you
0: feel confident that he he hasn't made that decision already?
3: As of this moment, I'm convinced he's made the decision. We have reason to believe that.
0: Mr. Mr. President, to be clear, to Mr. President, to be clear,
1: you to be clear, you are convinced that you are convinced that President Putin is going to invade Ukraine. Is that what you just said a few minutes yes, ago? Yes, I did.
3: Yes.
2: So
1: is diplomacy off the table then?
3: No. All, until he does, diplomacy is always a possibility.
1: What reason do you have to believe he's considering that option at all?
3: have a significant intelligence capability. Thank you
0: quote we have reason to believe that Russian forces are planning to attack Ukraine in the coming week in the coming days we believe that they will target Ukraine's capital Kiev a city of 2.8 million innocent people if Russia takes military action before that date will be clear that they have they'll have slammed the door shut on diplomacy they will have chosen war and they will pay a steep price for doing so then a reporter asked Mr president do you have any indication whether President Putin has made a decision on whether to invade do you feel that do you feel confident that he hasn't made the decision already president biden responds quote as of this moment i'm convinced he's made the decision end quote after the president says that there is just this sense of shock in the room because another reporter essentially asked the same question just to clarify that biden did not mince words there but no he repeated his assertion that putin has made the The decision to invade Ukraine. According to recent U.S. intelligence from last week, a Russian invasion of Ukraine could leave up to 50,000 civilians dead, decapitate the government in Kiev within two days, and launch a humanitarian crisis with up to 5 million refugees fleeing the resulting chaos. Reuters reports that between 169,000 to 190,000 Russian troops are amassed along the Ukrainian border right now. That accounts for about 40 to 50 percent of the Russian military. In addition, in addition to that, excuse me, we've learned from the Washington Post that those troops have additional personnel for logistics, air power, and medical support as field hospitals are being set up. The Ukrainians are literally surrounded right now and major problems persist. Russian troops and the Russian separatists, which are already in eastern Ukraine, those separatists keep trying to provoke Ukrainian forces. Literally right after they said that Ukraine was about to attack Donetsk and Luhansk, a car bomb went off in Donetsk. No one was wounded or died, but the cameras captured it, providing the separatists with more supposed evidence and more supposed proof that, hey, guys, look, these suspicious Ukrainians are about to do something to us. Again, it's 100% false, but also illogical for Ukraine to do something like that, given that they're literally surrounded by Russian forces. But that hasn't stopped the separatists from backing down with their claims. ABC News reports, quote, Russian-controlled separatists in eastern Ukraine claimed on Sunday, Ukrainian forces tried to storm some frontline positions and the separatists held areas overnight and accused them of killing two civilians. Ukraine has denied its forces have launched any attacks and the unverified claims came as a Russia appeared to be intensifying its efforts to build a pretext to launch an invasion of Ukraine by claiming it, it is coming to the defense of the separatist, Russian and separatist officials and media in the past four days have unleashed a barrage of false claims about Ukrainian attacks, including staging a fake bombing of a car in the separatist de facto, de facto capital, Donetsk. End quote. So Russian separatists are creating and stoking these false flags about a potential Ukrainian attack, about a supposed imminent Ukrainian attack. So Russia is justified to invade, saying, hey, yeah, we need to invade Ukraine because look what the Ukrainians are doing to our brothers and sisters there. Look what they're doing to our separatists. The Wall Street Journal recently reported that those separatists, those same Russian separatists supported by the Russian government, have just killed two Ukrainian soldiers Wanting to provoke them so that Russia can invade to come to the defense of those separatists. President Biden just oversaw, excuse me, President Putin, excuse me, uh, just oversaw nuclear drills, rolling out tanks, warships, and launching missiles yesterday yesterday which was Saturday, testing his equipment and military might, presumably as a show of force. On top of that, this week there were cyber attacks in Ukraine, hitting the Ukrainian Military of Defense, Ministry of Defense and Armed Forces, resulting in the two websites temporarily collapsing. According to Politico, the cyber attack on Tuesday just comes after 70 Ukrainian government websites were defeated, excuse me, defaced and disabled last month which was blamed on Russia by Ukrainian officials. Russia has launched devastating cyber attacks on the country before. In 2015, hackers took down part of the power grid in Ukraine, leaving millions without power in the winter. In 2017, Russia was responsible for disrupting and disabling systems in Ukraine's government and private sector. So the cyber attack that happened this week very well could have been Russia again. On that front, uh, the United States Department of Homeland Security and FBI have warned that Russia may attack critical cyber infrastructure here in the United States as well. As well as diplomatic efforts to continue to, in a concerted effort to de-escalate tensions, Vice President Kamala Harris warning yesterday in Germany of a far-reaching far-reaching sanctions against Russia and its allies in the event of an invasion. Ukraine's president has accused the world of appeasing Russia, urging them to take stronger action. He met yesterday with the French president for an urgent conversation. The United States Secretary of State um, and Russian Foreign Minister will meet next week if an invasion has not already happened, according to officials. President Biden is set to meet with his National Security Council on this matter ahead of those talks. CBS News national security correspondent David Martin reported on Face the Nation today that the U.S. intelligence, um, the United States has intelligence that Russian commanders have received orders to proceed with an invasion of Ukraine, with commanders on the ground making specific plans for how they'll maneuver in their sectors of battlefield. And quite frankly here, when you look at the situation, the truth is that many Ukrainians do not want war. Not even many Russians. More than half of Russian citizens said that a global war is one of their biggest fears, according to a recent poll. To ensure Putin knows what's coming, if there is an invasion, the West and the United States are promising severe sanctions. Cutting off pipelines, which is huge for Russia's economy. Their economy literally heavily depends on oil and gas. And also just international sanctions. Severe backlash on their banks as well. As well as among other potential consequences. We will keep you updated on this story as you should yourself as well. Please continue to stay updated on this situation. This is a story that has global implications. This is a story that the world is watching. We'll be right back. If you looked at America like a bird, and that was all you knew, would you really understand it with just that point of view? We've got a different way to look at it from right here on the ground. We don't just see United States, we see United towns. From where we sit, just down the street, near the post office, by the park. When we stop and look around, what we see are sparks. Sparks of hope, of compassion, of communities who stand firm when neighbors lift each other up, expecting nothing in return. We're grateful for what you bring and all the sparks you've shown in the thousands of towns that we get to call home. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show. New episodes will be coming out today as well as tomorrow. So look forward to that as well as an upcoming special on domestic terrorism here on the Jeremiah Patterson Show. We're going to try to do a lot more interviews and also specials this year on the show. So look forward to those coming out soon. There's a lot happening in the news right now. and Keep your eyes open. Stay informed. Make sure you are not getting your information off of social media, but as I like to say, from credible and reliable sources. Thank you again for listening. Have a great day. Remember to stay positive and inspired. Share this episode with a family or friend and take care.